This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. I am Bill Newman. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And we have joining us at this time, Attorney John Pucci. John is a partner in the Springfield and Northampton-based firm of Buckley Richardson. He was formerly a U.S. attorney, a former prosecutor, and he has had a lot of experience in prosecuting police officers. In fact, it was one of his major, I think, law reform efforts as a U.S. attorney in bringing prosecutions against police officers who engaged in violence. And I wanted to talk to John in particular today. This is his regular time for his segment. Uh, but I wanted to ask him today, and I'm just I'm so pleased he could be join us at this time because of what happened in Memphis uh, with Tyree Nichols. And we were talking before we went on, John, about how police are prosecuted and more significantly, why they engage in violent acts. What are the precipitating factors that allow it and perpetuate that kind of that kind of violence? So I'd like to go back. I know that some of our listeners are familiar with your background, but I'd appreciate if you could share with us what you did as a uh, U.S. attorney, uh, particularly in Philadelphia, with regard to prosecution of the police. So share that with us, if you would, please, and then we'll get to the content. So I was an assistant U.S. attorney from 1984 to 1994. I did my first six years in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Philadelphia. And when I arrived there, uh, among about 80 different federal prosecutors, I learned quickly that there was a longstanding rumor that the undercover narcotics uh, uh, squad of the Philadelphia Police Department was corrupt in, in, in that they were stealing drugs and stealing money and stealing property from people they searched and that they dummied up search warrants. And when I arrived there in 1984, the U.S. attorney uh, was presented with a game plan for attacking this squad, the elite nar undercover narcotics squad of the Philadelphia Police Department known as Five Squad. And the U.S. attorney at that time decided he would not authorize the press of the investigation because he felt that all the witnesses would be drug dealers and that the government would have to immunize them, uh, that is, agree not to charge them with their drug offenses in order to make the case against the police. He weighed one thing against another and decided and declined the prosecution. So I arrived and one day on duty, what they called duty, one of the police officers' wives showed up and she said, I want to tell you all about my husband who, with the five squad officers, have been stealing drugs and stealing money and stealing everything they could and fixing cases. And my husband tells me all about it and I hate him and I want to tell you all about it. And that led to me getting an IRS agent who then we put her in. And she said that after we have big fights, after he comes out stinking drunk, he comes home. And, he, and we have a big fight, and he throws in the bed a big wad of cash, and he says, this is what we got from the searches tonight, honey. Take whatever you want, and that would end the fight, and we would go off in a huff. So, so he then would take her the next day in a fit of hangover, I suppose you might call it, and they would drive around in Philadelphia, and he would point out the houses where they had conducted searches and stolen money and property. And that led us to put her in a car with some federal agents and they went around and she located all the houses that had been searched at that time. 
we found the search warrants, we interviewed the uh, people who were lived in those houses, many of whom did have, in fact, involvement in the drug trade. They all said to a person that money and drugs were stolen from them, and the case was up and running. And now the declination of the case by the prior U.S. attorney was off the board. We had a new witness. We had a whole series of witnesses who said they were robbed and, and money was stolen. And we went through a process of indicting that one single officer whose wife had come in. She was the star witness against him. Let that be a warning to you. And um, uh, she was the star witness. He was convicted. He agreed to cooperate with us and he became a five squad member and the star witness in a huge 11 week trial of full days in Philadelphia federal court. The first trial hung, it hung after 11 weeks when two jurors, female jurors were seen having drinks with two of the defendants during the trial, during the deliberations. The jury hung 10 to two to convict with those two women holding up the jury. We retried the case for nine weeks and it was convictions pretty much across the board. Were substantial. And that was the five squad case. But what was happening in the five squad case beyond the thefts was that the, the knowledge of law enforcement all the way to the top in the FBI, all the way to the top in the IRS, all the way to the top in the Philadelphia Police Department was unable to, were unable to bring them to earth and uh, established sort of a impunity for these guys. And that impunity was they felt they could not be prosecuted and they were bulletproof and their actions got worse and worse and worse and worse over the years until it became, you know, a complete monstrosity. None of the drug dealers were prosecuted. They were all victims of thefts. They would steal a kilo of cocaine and turn in an ounce of it. They fixed cases and it became a complete monstrosity because the culture and leadership of law enforcement across all these agencies at the top was unable to or unwilling to or a combination of both to bring these people to earth. And so when you look at these other cases, you look at the George Floyd case. If you look at the George Floyd case, he kills, he kills, Derek Chauvin kills Judge George Floyd in front of other offices. Why don't they react? Why don't they stop what they're seeing right in front of their eyes stop the murder of somebody else. And it's, and, and it's because there's a culture with, with a person like Derek Chauvin that accepts his violence, does not deal with it. And there's a lack of leadership in, poli in the police department who know about these practices to stop the practices. And I think the same thing has happened in the Tyree Nichols case. They commit this crime in public, in front of witnesses, on camera, on camera, and why would they do a murder on camera and do that? Why do they high five? Why do they clap each other's on the back? They're bad actors, but they're not rogue actors because in some way they reflect the culture and the failure of leadership at the top of the police department. John Pucci, let me ask you this. The heart of your story, and I want to, I want to talk more about Tyree Nichols, uh, but the part of the story that you tell that struck me uh, is that the prosecution itself came about through happenstance. It wasn't because of great police work or federal investigations or prosecutors nobly riding, riding their uh, in, into battle. It was the fluke 
of a police officer's wife walking into the office and saying something horrible is going on. And but for that, there might well not have been a prosecution at all. And I'm wondering what that what that tells us. Well, here's something. Well, it tells you that the culture was willing to was unable to grapple with the problem. There was a lack of leadership in the police department and the FBI, I might add, uh, that was unable and unwilling or unwilling to grapple with this really difficult problem of an embedded, embedded corruption and embedded monstrous practices that were all enclosed within the five squad group of offices who were all part of a group and it was groupthink and they were empowered on the street and they were powerful and feared and law enforcement at the top levels would not engage with them and left it to carry on. And I think it's the pattern you're seeing in Floyd. It's the pattern I saw in Philadelphia and it's exactly what is staring in front of you in Nichols. And there was a case recently in Springfield where the same thing happened and we can talk about that, the big case, the same exact pattern of a failure of leadership and a failure of culture to deal with somebody who's breaking all the rules in violating civil rights across the board. Let me ask you about Big Dip for a second. And uh, Michael Meltzer, we need you to, if you could mute, that would help us out in the terms of the transmission. We'll be speaking with Michael Meltzer, who is another civil rights attorney in the second part of this this hour. Uh, but John Pucci, I want to ask you about one of the similarities with Bigda, because in Bigda, there is a camera videotaping his aggressive, illegal threats made to a, a, a young person, a teenager, uh, saying how he's going to kill him. And welcome to the white man's world, he says to this black kid. Um, and it's all being filmed. And he knows it's being filmed. And the same is true with Tyree Nichols. How can police officers commit crimes in front of cameras knowing they are being filmed, knowing this could be evidence, and that they seem they don't care? What is that about? They feel they they have they're acting with impunity. If if you think that the first time Derek Chauvin put this kind of a beating or, uh, or killing, maybe killing, but at least a vicious beating on somebody was George Floyd. No, no, no. If you think that the first time those the cops that killed Tyree Nichols beat up somebody that badly and left him that badly off, no, no, no. They have built an impunity over a long series of practices that have not been dealt with by leadership or the culture in the police department. And, and, and when you look at Floyd and you see the other officers standing around watching it, and you look at Nichols and you see the other officers cheering on effectively the murder of someone in front of them that's on camera. They are so blind to, and, and it's the product of, to the camera. They're not blind to the product of the, to the cameras, but it's the product of a bravado and a belief that they will not be brought to task for it because the culture in the police department hasn't done it and the leadership hasn't done it. And so they're just going to keep on doing it. And if it wasn't Tyree Nichols, it would be someone else this week or next week or the next month. Maybe this will bring it to a head in Memphis. Maybe it will result in real change. But unless you get rid of the really bad apples and you really work on culture and you really have dedicated professionals 
at the top who are going to provide leadership, you can't change these practices. One of the things that you hear, we hear from police departments is when they when the officers caught on camera is they say, well, there were a few bad apples and we're going to get rid of them and we'll have a fine police department yet again. And yet you're saying something quite different, John. You're saying that there is something bigger than the officers themselves. There is a culture. There is a lack of attention. There's a lack of supervision. There's a lack of caring about illegality. And without that, these individual officers wouldn't get to do either as badly or as often what they engage in in terms of violence and illegality. Do, am I hearing you right on that? Uh, I think you're hearing me right. Um, and I think that there's another component of this, which is if you look at this five squad case that I did, the victims of this were all engaged in one way or another with the drug trade. They had records. They were not people that were attractive as witnesses. They were not people you wanted to build cases on, a case on. They were in not, the same, John, John, let me interrupt. They were also not people who were going to go to the police and say, hi, my drugs were just stolen and my cash, which I made from drug dealing, was just stolen. Can you help me out, officer, please? That's not going to happen. And that's one oh. reason why the police feel this kind of uh, immunity or impunity from uh, being prosecuted because the people they are ripping off, beating up, are not likely to go to the authorities. And the deal with the narcotics officers was that they would steal 90% of the drugs. And so when if, the, if they made an arrest and it went to court, the drug dealer knew they'd stolen 90% of the cocaine or the heroin, which they then sold themselves through other dealers. They knew that and they weren't going to squeal on the cops because they were only getting prosecuted for 10% of what they had. It was an implicit deal that everybody agreed to. The cops could do what they wanted. They could get the drugs. The drug dealers, dealers didn't complain. They're not going to the feds and saying, oh, I had three kilos of cocaine <laughs> instead of an ounce of cocaine. They're very happy with the deal. The deal has been made in an implicit way, fix the case, let them off being prosecuted, and um, don't complain. And everybody's kind of morphing around each other and in agreement uh, with that kind of a deal. At the end of the last of these five squad cases, in my closing argument, I was able to point out that even though they had impugned the integrity of probably 20 people who they had robbed because these people had drug records, they admitted that they were drug dealers on the stand. Not one of them had ever done a day in jail because of the five squad. And that reflected the deal. The deal was we steal from you, you don't complain, and if you complain, we'll be back and it'll be much worse for you. And so that was the deal then. And I think that, you know, the Tyree Nichols thing, what happens, what goes off the rail with Tyree Nichols is he's not a criminal. He's just a real person. He's a regular person going about his daily activities. If he was one of the typical people, the Memphis police scorpion squad is encountering on the street who has a history of violence, who's a bad guy or woman, whatever, has a history of violence uh, and, and is a danger to the public, which is often the case in the, in the world that the scorpions lived in. Those people are not good witnesses to bring it forward. And they're not even real good, quote, if, you, if there is such a thing, good victims. But Tyree Nichols was not a criminal. 
and he was a complete victim, and that's where they crossed the line in a way that brought the House of Cards down on him. We are speaking with Attorney John Pucci. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation. More to talk about with regard to Tyree Nichols right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. One thing I like about working at ServiceNet is that in addition to being a manager, I can still be a clinician. If you're a licensed mental health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet. For people working private practice who want to also still have a commitment to community mental health, working at ServiceNet gives me the opportunity to do both at the same time. Go to the employment page at servicenet.org. If only there were an indoor, climate-controlled farmer's market every day of the year. Oh, but there is. At State Street Fruit Store, Deli Wines and Spirits, farmers are bringing in their best from the field, orchards, and greenhouses every day. The best of the crop from wherever the crop is best, starting with fiddleheads and asparagus, all the way through berry season, corn, and into the root veggies, and hothouse stuff to get you through a New England winter. Plus, you can grab a bottle of burgundy or bourbon. And since it's open every day of the year, it's like a farmer's market every day of the year. But no rain, no snow, no heat wave, and they open at 6.30 a.m. every day of the year. Those are farmer's hours. Since the market is inside the building, there's plenty of room to park in the lot. State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits on the corner of State and Center in downtown Northampton. It's like an indoor farmer's market every day of the year. We continue our conversation with Attorney John Pucci. This is Crime and Punishment, a regular segment we have on our show with John, who is a partner in the Springfield and Northampton-based law firm of Buckley, Richardson, and Gelinas, and a former U.S. attorney. We are talking about Tyree Nichols. We're talking about police department culture. We are talking about whether or not, and this is where we left off, so I'd like to pick it up here, whether we're talking about something way more sinister than rogue cops. John, your thoughts? Well, my point of this entire discussion is that they're not really rogue cops. They're cops generally who are accepted within the culture of the police department. It's well known what their practices are. Um, and if you object or fight against their practices, if you report them 
to the to, you're going to become an outsider in that police culture. You may even put your life at risk. So at least in 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 Philadelphia, the head of the squad, who was the most corrupt and led the whole thing, would only accept police officers on his team who were themselves thieves. So that was sort of the criteria for whether you could get on five squad. Everybody knew it. The FBI knew it. The and they and they were they felt they were hamstrung because they were afraid to try to create a case based on essentially drug offenders and the wife of one police officer. So um, the feds fell down on this uh, until there was a break in the case and we had a star witness who was very courageous and angry <laughs> and willing to testify to the whole case and it all fell together. But it wasn't a case until the star witness who became the star witness right. walked in. Uh, right. th this would have gone on in Philadelphia, in Philadelphia for a long time. And I suspect that but for the death, the homicide of Tyree Nichols, it would have gone on with the Scorpion Squad in Memphis for a long time. And right. no one would have said anything. Leading me to this question, if it's a culture that needs to be changed in order to effectuate, effectuate a semblance of justice on the street. How do you change that? It's not just a matter of let's have a better training course or let's uh, uh, have a little more supervision, although more supervision would help maybe. Uh, how do you change a culture that accepts this kind of illegality by those who are supposed to be in the business of stopping crime? Well, it starts with leadership. I mean, it has to start at the top. And it's really difficult to, to change a set culture that is in a very wide range, a big organization. These de police departments are large organizations. They're set in stone based on decades of experience. So it's difficult, it's, but it's a real challenge. And it takes a, an extraordinary skill and ability to be able to take leadership over them and responsibility over them and change and, and, and institute change, which over time uh, may result in a, in a better you know, police department. The, in, in, in Massachusetts, there's a very important statute that was passed recently that Baker pushed through, creating a commission that requires every police officer in Massachusetts to be certified by that commission on an annual basis you know, going forward. And the certification is not by the local police chief who's, who's got, who is stuck with these officers, but by an independent commission, which will look at them. And if they're not certified, they cannot be law enforcement in Massachusetts. It's an enormous, an enormous step forward for an independent review of police practices, officer by officer across the whole state. And we're going to see how it turns out, but they've decertified now a handful, maybe a dozen officers in Massachusetts who were really, really, really bad. And, you know, there's a hope there that that piece of legislation and the review of police conduct by the state, new state police commission can make a difference. I, I, I agree. This is Buzz Eisenberg, John Pucci. And I just, in a couple of minutes that we have before uh, we break, I, I just wanted to ask you, my experience uh, teaching at Greenfield Community College, where I, I had a lot of police officers taking my courses. So I did a lot of work around exactly the culture you're talking about. I also went to school in the late 60s and 70s when Frank Rizzo was police commissioner 
in Philadelphia, and the culture you're talking about was a baked-in culture. And this is what I want to ask you. The whole thrust of the academy and the training of police officers starts with officer safety first. So when they approach, we have to segregate the corruption you saw in Philadelphia from the kind of um, racism and uh, over uh, too much violence from a traffic stop. I'm wondering whether or not this sort of focus on police safety, they're supposed to be our heroes, allows them to get into a mindset that sort of perpetuates the culture you're deploring. Well, I, I don't really know the answer to that problem. Part of the problem is that being a police officer is, you know, exposes you to tremendous risks and violence, and it can transform people who might have those tendencies or those capabilities. You certainly, if you want to be a police officer, you have to be willing and capable of going into violent situations with armed people and if necessary, shooting them. So you're starting from that, from that sort of base and group of people. And it's really requires a lot of discipline and, and education and culture to, to make that work the right way rather than having, having it run out of control. Let me just drop this into this conversation. Since the Tyree Nichols, and this is, answers your, 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 your question in part, uh, uh, Buzz, since the Tyree Nichols, five days ago, there was another shooting of a black man in a library in Memphis by Memphis police officers. All the police officers were black. The, 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 the victim of that shooting was black. But what happened was they encountered this guy in the library he was agitating people in the library. One thing led to another. That person, the person who gets ultimately shot by a cop, shoots one of the police officers. So he shoots first. And the police officer is very badly damaged, very badly injured. And the other police officer pulls out a gun and shoots that guy. So this thing happens on the street. That was not the product of police misconduct or police overaggression, as far as I could tell from the reports. The, the, the guy, the citizen that gets shot, shot the cop first, which underscores, you know, the, the, the trauma the cops are under, the pressure they're under, the fears that even the good ones, every cop has when they go out in the streets, particularly in a, in a, in a violent area, in, particularly in a city like, like Memphis, regardless of their race or the perpetrator's race. It exists, it's dangerous, and you know what happens. You know the old phrase about what happens. Sometimes mm -hmm. it just happens, and it's not going to be prevented forever. And we should note that Scorpion, the squad, that this so-called elite squad of uh, crime fighters in Memphis, was created by the police chief not so long ago for the purpose of trying to reduce violence in Memphis and to bring down what is, I believe, the highest homicide rate in, of any rate of any city in the country. So this tension between what police officers need to do to keep themselves safe and what they need to do to not violate the rights, to not inflict violence, to not do the wrong thing, you know, it's, it's not exactly simple. A final thought from you, John? The Five Squad was also put together in Philadelphia to tackle the narcotics trade. So it's not that the idea is bad. It's the, it's the training and the supervision and the leadership above it that needs to be really careful and thoughtful and, and, and own what happens below them 
and act responsibly in the public interest that makes that can really make the difference. Right. They can't condone the violence and they can't be complicit in it. That's crucial. We're going to leave it there. John Pucci, thank you so much for being with us every month. We really appreciate it. This has been Crime and Punishment with John Pucci. We're going to be right back with more. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. State Senator Joe Comerford says there's no competition for funding and resources between the two proposed passenger rail lines connecting Western Mass to Boston. The East-West Rail connecting Boston to Springfield and Pittsfield and the Northern Tier Rail connecting Boston to Greenfield and North Adams are two ambitious projects overseen by different legislators and on different timelines. This is a very fruitful time for us all. Don't stop us by saying that there's only one rail project. It shortchanges Western Massachusetts immeasurably for us to be scarcity-based instead of really going for it at this moment with a lot of infrastructure money on the table. Western Mass Passenger Rail Commission is meeting regularly to determine the proper governance structure for future passenger rail service in our region. UMass is pausing construction on a pavilion project for workers after objections from neighbors. The school was going to build a pavilion as a tribute to its workers near the Arthur F. Kinney Center for Renaissance Studies. But following some backlash, UMass is now looking for another location. In November, the university announced its intention to use a $7 million gift from an anonymous donor to build the UMass Service Workers Honor Pavilion. For the sixth year in a row, an East Hampton High School class has bested its competitors, taking home first place at the We the People, the Citizen and Constitution State Finals at the Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the U.S. Senate in Boston. The academic competition tests students on their understanding of the U.S. Constitution and legal principles and is run by the State Center for Civic Education. The win is the school's seventh overall. Mostly sunny this morning, partly sunny to mostly cloudy this afternoon, a high of 42. Some rain and snow showers move through this evening. It's an overnight low of 26 to 32. Becoming mostly sunny tomorrow, 42 to 46. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Jorge Rochivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden dijo el lunes que las relaciones entre Washington y Beijing no se debilitaron por el derribo por parte de Estados Unidos de un presunto globo espía chino durante el fin de semana. Hablando con los periodistas fuera de la Casa Blanca, Biden dijo que siempre tuvo la opinión de que el globo debía ser derribado tan pronto como fuera apropiado. Cuando se le preguntó si el incidente del globo debilita las relaciones entre Estados Unidos y China, Biden dijo, no, le dejamos claro a China lo que vamos a hacer. Ellos entienden nuestra posición, no vamos a retroceder. Por su parte, el Pentágono dijo durante el fin de semana que globos espías chinos habían volado brevemente sobre Estados Unidos al menos tres veces durante la administración del presidente Donald Trump y una anteriormente bajo la del presidente Joe Biden. Mientras tanto, la Guardia Costera de Estados Unidos dijo el lunes que estaba imponiendo una zona de seguridad temporal en las aguas de Surfside Beach, Carolina del Sur, en el área donde fue derribado el globo. Altos funcionarios estadounidenses se han ofrecido a informar a personas de la administración anterior sobre los detalles de sobrevuelos de globos anteriores cuando Trump era presidente. 
En otras informaciones, el presidente republicano de la Cámara de Representantes de Estados Unidos, Kevin McCarthy, pidió al presidente demócrata Joe Biden que acepte compromisos y recortes de gastos, ya que los dos siguen estancados sobre el aumento del límite de deuda de la nación de 31.4 billones de dólares. McCarthy habló el lunes antes de que Biden pronuncie el discurso anual sobre el Estado de la Unión en una sesión conjunta del Congreso este martes, con el objetivo de adelantarse al presidente y reforzar su papel como el principal negociador del Congreso. A pesar de lo que parece ser un enfrentamiento, McCarthy salió de una reunión con Biden la semana pasada, diciendo que creía que los dos podrían encontrar puntos en común. Un día después, McCarthy dijo a los periodistas que el presidente había acordado reunirse nuevamente. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome to the show Michael Meltzner. I know of Michael. Most people who have worked in the anti-death penalty movement know him. I also know him because the dean of the law school I graduated, Northeastern University School of Law. And he is with us today in particular because of his new book, new novel, Mosaic, Who Paid for the Bullet, a novel of the civil rights era. era. Uh, Michael Meltzner, thank you so much for being with us. I, I want to talk more about what we were talking about with John Pucci and something we were talking about during the break, which is how the law protects the cops so they can't be held accountable. We'll get back to that in just a moment. But for those of our listeners who say, okay, I really don't know who this person is, I wish appreciated if you would give us some of your background and your involvement in the civil rights movement, in civil rights law, the anti-death penalty movement, and then we're going to talk more about these issues. Michael Meltzner? Well, I've had a lucky legal life. Um, I graduated from uh, Yale Law School in 1960, and a year later I was hired by Thurgood Marshall uh, to join the NACP Legal Defense Fund, which people should know is a separate organization from the NAACP. Can I interrupt you one second? Is that uh, when I was working as a college student in 1968, the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund was called, was, it's just a mouthful, was called the Inc. Fund because it was the uh, NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, Inc., and just for shorthand, people called it the Inc. Fund. Was that true when you were there? Absolutely, but now people refer to it as pretty much as LDF, and it was uh, separated by Marshall from the NAACP itself a few years before I joined in 1961 when he, he hired me before he became a judge. Um, and I was the uh, eventually the first assistant counsel at LDF, really the legal arm of the civil rights movement. Most of the cases uh, that people uh, think about, um, uh, you know, from Selma to Birmingham uh, to the Supreme Court um, were brought by LDF or the Inc. Fund as absolutely. That's, that's the way we were known uh, in those days. Okay, tell us about some of your work for uh, Judge, then to become Judge, then Justice Marshall. Well, he, he left shortly after he hired me to become a Second Circuit um, Court of Appeals judge and, you know, ultimately ended up in the Supreme Court. And my boss was a man named Jack Greenberg, who Marshall selected to lead uh, LDF during the 60s, a really uh, a great lawyer and, uh, uh, and leader. And I, I just had an enormously uh, 
wonderful uh, time there. Um, I was involved with a small group of people who started the uh, anti-death penalty campaign that led to Furman v. Georgia and abolition in 1972. Um, and uh, the case that um, really uh, led me to the novel uh, began uh, shortly after I joined LDF. Um, when, my, when Greenberg said to me, I want you to bring a, uh, a case against the only federal statute that uh, explicitly permits separate but equal segregation. And this was an act, act called the Hill-Burton Act, which was passed by the Congress in 1946. It really revolutionized the um, regulation and the funding of Americans, America's hospitals. It raised the level of health care uh, immediately, uh, especially in, in rural areas. But the price of passing this bill, which was uh, really created by an Alabama senator, Lister Hill, was going along with his insistence that there be a separate but equal clause, which basically said hospitals could exclude African-Americans or segregate them because he was an Alabama senator. He was progressive, but he was dead in the water if he did not support segregation. So um, I brought this case in North Carolina, and the ultimate result was that the separate but equal clause was declared unconstitutional. Uh, ultimately, the opinion by the judge who wrote that became uh, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 64, which basically says you take federal money, you can't discriminate. Anyway, the responsibility to enforce this um, uh, change in law fell on the federal government. And after some toing and froing, uh, really rather amazing results. Uh, the bureaucracy responded well. Hundreds of inspectors went out and slowly but surely um, the uh, hospital and medical facilities were opened up to black Americans. But there were resistors. Yeah, Michael and Meltzer, let me ask you this because I did not realize, I, I guess somewhere in the back of my uh, civic mind I knew this, I did not realize that Hilburton, which of course has this reputation of being enormously important and successful as a program across the country, that it had this separate but equal clause in it. I just did not remember that. And what struck me, struck me in, from, from passages in your, in your book as well, um, is how this separate but equal clause ended up killing black patients who needed attention, medical attention ended up hurting the black communities. It wasn't just there was inferior medical care. These were life and death situations and people died because of this. Could you tell, us, tell us more about that? Well, the classic example, and there were hundreds of such examples, was of someone who's, uh, who, who was brought to a hospital by an, by an ambulance in a life or death situation. And the hospital said, oh, sorry, uh, we, we don't take colored patients. Uh, go across town to the other clinic uh, if you, or find another doctor who will deal with it. And of course, often that led to the uh, victim being DOA. Uh, uh, and 
the, the range of these stories is, is enormous. And one of the really interesting things that has followed to this day is that the black community um, felt that this was ever present. And so, for example, uh, Dr. Charles Drew, who um, really uh, developed and discovered blood types in, in America, uh, a black doctor, um, was um, killed or was de deeply injured in an automobile accident. And he died from that. But in the black community, even to this day, um, folks believe that he was denied care at a hospital. And that tells you how, um, how powerful the um, impact of this kind of segregation and exclusion was in, in developing mistrust in the community of the healthcare system. And that's continued to this day and has affected the disparities in, in uh, healthcare results as we talk today. So, Michael Meltzer, in your novelization of a real situation that you really encountered in your work in the South during the civil rights era, um, and the title of the novel we should note is Mosaic, Who Paid for the Bullet, a novel of the civil rights era, you, you utilize this based on the truth uh, fact pattern. Tell us the backstory for this novel. Well, so in order to enforce the, the law, the, the Fed sent hundreds of inspectors out. And um, when they were dealing with this large medical facility in a southern city, um, they sent an, an official out who knew that there was a woman doctor on the staff who was explaining as a mole to the feds how this hospital system was kind of playing what, what I would call Potemkin village games. An example is um, in, in, in one of the hospitals, uh, an inspector comes in and the superintendent or the director of the hospital says, oh, we've integrated, let me show you a ward. And he takes the guy to a, a, a small ward and he, there are four beds and he says, look, there are uh, two white people here, there's a black person here, and, and there's a Hispanic. And we're integrated. But the inspector looks, he says, well, they're all comatose. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff they were playing, games they were playing. And she was see secretly informing the Office of Civil Rights in Washington. So uh, the, they sent a high level official down there to read the riot act to this hospital, and the uh, read hospital, the riot read the riot act meaning you have got to integrate. You really uh, need to offer equal services to black and yeah. white persons, or else we're going to try and cut off your funding. We're going to we're going to exclude you from the list. And um, uh, he goes down there and he's told quietly by the civil rights people, "Hey, we got this mole, and you want to talk to her." about what's actually going on and he what checks into yeah and what happened to her okay well um 10 days after his he he, he contacts her uh she's found dead on her front porch with a bullet wound and the response of the community is really significant 
first of all, there's almost no investigation. The local paper calls it an accident. But the, the gossip in the community is as follows. Oh, she had a black lover. Or, um, oh, you know, she really was a lesbian. Or, oh, I think she committed suicide. And the case is forgotten. No, there's no real investigation. Um, time passes. This is 1967. Um, me meanwhile, my life goes on. I, I become an academic. I continue to deal with death cases um, and a variety of other civil rights issues. I teach constitutional law. And then one day, um, maybe uh, five or six years ago, I get a call from a prominent medical investigator, an, another academic, and he says, I've been studying this particular case, and I think she was murdered. Let's leave it there. We are talking with Michael Meltzner. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about Mosaic, Who Paid for the Bullock? Bullet, a novel of the civil rights era. We'll continue our conversation with Michael Meltzner right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. Slice open a fresh, local watermelon, bright pink inside. Wait, watermelon? This time of year? Watermelon radishes. Sure, it's winter, but the Atlas Farm Store has so much fresh, local produce. Basics like potatoes, onions, and butternut, apples, carrots, beets, plus little adventures like daikon and celeriac root. I know, you look at celeriac or daikon and wonder what to do with them. Just buy them and try them. They don't bite. The Atlas Farm Store, fresh local produce, even now. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Push, push, come on, one more. Let's go, go, go. 
Is this your idea of personal training? If so, you've got it all wrong. Or perhaps we've got it all right at Fitness Together, where we meet you where you are to get you where you want to be. Fitness Together trainers help you reach your goal at any fitness level, even despite ailments and physical limitations. So don't let a misconception keep you from having the energy to do what you love. Learn how you can get it together at Fitness Together Amherst or Northampton. Are you organized, detail-oriented, responsible, fun-loving, and a team player? The Northampton Radio Group is looking for you. We've currently got an opening for a part-time office assistant. The job is right out front, so you have to like people. A knowledge of Microsoft Office is essential, and a sense of humor is a must. Send your resume and cover letter to Office Position, Northampton Radio Group, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Mass., 01060, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. We continue our conversation with attorney and former dean of the law school, Northeastern University School of Law, Michael Meltzner, whose new book is Mosaic, Who Paid for the Bullet, a novel of the civil rights era, who was telling us about the backstory, the factual background for this book. Quickly, if you would, please, Michael, why tell the story in the form of a novel as opposed to reportage or nonfiction book? I would have preferred to do that, but the, uh, the, the record was cold. There was nothing there that we could find. Uh, your law school, Northeastern, has a cold case project, and we investigated um, as best we could and, and found that um, there was not su sufficient evidence to write a typical nonfiction report. Most people were dead. Um, so I had to call the medical historian and give him the bad news. And I said, we're, we're basically at a, a dead end here. Uh, I can't get, I can't move forward. Well, two weeks later, I woke up in the middle of the night and uh, I just couldn't let the story go. I'd written a novel many years ago uh, about a civil rights lawyer for Random House, and I thought I'd give it a try. And the result is Mosaic, who paid for the bullet. And it's a novel about the search to uncover the murderer of a woman doctor who was exposing racism and corruption of a medical community in a large southern city. Who was from, so, who was from the north? He's he's an ex-prosecutor. He is he is a prosecutor who is sick and tired of doing what he did. He goes south and um, joins the civil rights legal mo movement in, and practices and uh, falls in love with this doctor. And so when um, when and, she and his, is, that character's name is North. <laughs> yes. Well, there's a little novelistic uh, double entendre there. Um, uh, there's law in this book, but this is not a book for, for, for lawyers. It's a novel inspired by these actual events. And it lives or dies on the basis of whether it moves people and whether they like the story. It's really a story about revenge, uh, but not with the usual violent, bloody uh, end of a kind of, of, of revenge even though the Klan is involved, as it was very much in, in those years. Um, did, did you have involvement in, with 
taking on the Klan? Oh, well, in many respects, uh, 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 it was uh, LDF's uh, role to try and support people who'd been um, moved one way or another uh, against the Klan. Um, I personally did not bring any litigation against uh, the Klan. There were other lawyers uh, who we were, we were uh, cooperating with who did. Uh, but the Klan is deeply involved in what happened in uh, what I call Gulf City, uh, along with the medical establishment, which was um, corrupt. And racist. And, and, and racist. Um, at the time, uh, as you described earlier, uh, or as we talked earlier about the way uh, the medical uh, establishment dealt with race, it was basically to provide very little support for black Americans, send them to uh, alternate facilities, which were hardly state of the art. Well, we are going to leave it there. I hope we can get you back on the show sometime soon, Michael Meltzer. Michael Meltzer's new book is Mosaic, Who Paid for the Bullet? It is a novel of the civil rights era. It's a fascinating read, and we really appreciate you, your work, your work against the death penalty, your civil rights work, and this novel. Michael Meltzer, thank you so much for being with us. Congratulations on the book. Thanks for having me. The devil Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, healthcare, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. Buzz Eisenberg. Hello, and, Bill Newman. Oh, hello, Buzz Eisenberg. <laughs> and I am uh, always uh, gratified and excited to speak with uh, Senator Paul Mark. I love saying Senator Paul Mark after all those years of saying Representative Paul Mark. Hello, Senator. Sounds pretty good. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, <laughs> not that you'd work for it or anything like that. <laughs> But uh, it's really so. You're you're in business. You're actually at work in the chamber, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in Thursday um, to uh, I think go over the rules, and I'm looking forward to it. I, I I it's 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 a different chamber. It's a different feel. With only forty, you sit in a round circle. It's like that, it's not a round table because you're around. There's desks in the middle and things like that. But but the uh, floor, you sit in a circle around the floor of the Senate. And uh, you're eye to eye. And so it definitely has a collaborative collegial feel. And uh, I'm looking forward to see how the first session of substance goes on, on this coming Thursday. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine it's a really different field than having 160 colleagues, 159 other colleagues, and you're all staring at the podium in in yeah. the House chamber. But the Senate chamber is quite intimate, and it is a circle, and um, it, it probably does make it easier di- to dialogue, right? Yeah, it, it, it's it's definitely easier to be in contact and communicate with uh, colleagues. You have the ability to text just about everyone or, or call everyone one-on-one, and I, I Looking at it now, when we when I met with the Senate president to kind of talk about committees which haven't been released yet, I think about the process that you have to go through in the House, and I almost feel bad for the Speaker. It's like there's 160 people to meet with, and they all want at least a half hour. <laughs> I mean, that's so right. long time. And so sometimes when when you think about, you know, why do the committees take so long? Like, I think that's a part of it. And, you know, it, it, it's frustrating to people. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very different feel. We were saying before the show got on, on the air – we have a caucus. So in the, in the house, the caucus is all 130 of you that are Democrats get into a room and, and you hear a couple of presentations and, you know, if you have questions, you ask them, but it's generally over in an hour. And yeah, it's not the most conducive to maybe having a really serious discussion of some, some nuances over the issues. But in the, in the Senate now with only 37 of us on the democratic side, you sit there and, and someone is charged with buying lunch. <laughs> so you're there for like <laughs> nice. more than two hours <laughs> talking about, hey, what are we going to do and what do you think? And uh, I, I spoke in the first caucus I, I was present at, which was, was kind of surprising to me. <laughs> really nice. Well, of course, you're a known quantity yeah. there. You've been there quite a while. You've been, you were in the House for what, uh, 11, 12, 12 years? years? Yeah, right. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, what bills are you really interested in? And I particularly wanted to start with the Green Bank, something I've read a little bit about, I really don't understand. This is an act to create uh, a Green Bank to promote clean energy. How does that work? Yeah, so the way it ultimately works, it's not a bank like you walk into uh, Berkshire Bank or, or the co-op or whatever, and, and you put uh, d- deposits in and that kind of thing. It's it's more of a, of a revolving loan fund where through a government agency or through a, a nonprofit organization, there's a a seed amount of money that's available that then can be lent out to green energy projects, renewable energy projects, green job projects. And the point of like, why do you need this is is sometimes when you're talking about some of these green projects, the traditional timelines, the traditional metrics that maybe a a commercial bank needs to look at just aren't going to be met in the same way. And the idea with the green bank is you, you want these projects to be successful. You want them to be sustainable. You want them to be profitable or at least break even. Um, but again, they're just, they're just not going to be the, the type of thing that maybe a bank of America is looking at. That's going to make X amount of money in X amount of quarters. And so it's, it's a bill I've been filing for quite a while. It came really close to becoming a uh, part of the law. It was actually, I think March 5th of 2020 that uh, we passed a bill that was, similarly titled Green Works in the House at the time, and it was going to be a billion dollars available over 10 years, and at least 10% of that had to be available for rural communities and all of that. And I don't know if you remember March of 2020, things kind of changed after March 5th, so we, that got, got sidelined, and we moved on to other things that really took the spotlight. But then part of the president's infrastructure bill and the president's efforts to kind of grow the economy and rethink the economy. They're making, I think, $27 billion available for green banking around the country. And so Massachusetts now is, is, is really getting ready to grab some of that. And um, before he left office, Governor Baker appointed uh, what he called a climate bank in the, the Mass CEC 
clean energy um, office. And so now we're working with them to try to craft language to make sure that this money gets used for projects we all care about, the right kind of projects, and that some of the money comes to rural and uh, coastal communities for sure. So I know when, when you were in the House proposing this, I know Senator uh, Jamie Eldridge was, was working with you in support mm-hmm. of this. Is he still, the two of you are still on board uh, pushing uh, green banks in the Senate? So, so what, what happened is now Rep. Joe Moschino from uh, the Hull area, who was the author of that uh, Next Generation Energy Roadmap bill, she uh, she took over in the House for me. So now we're, we're working uh, really closely. But yeah, Senator Eldridge, others have, have been have been great, and I imagine they'll continue to be great. And uh, we're in that part of the calendar right now where we're kind of looking for people to co-sponsor these bills. And so, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll get some of the Senate colleagues to jump on board. And I'm hearing that a couple of outside groups are pretty interested, too. And so we have a couple of meetings coming up in the next few weeks to, to discuss how we get advocacy groups to you know be supportive and make this the best thing it can be. We should note we are speaking with Senator Paul Mark. He's a senator from the Franklin, Hamden, you know, let me try, Berkshire, Hamden, Franklin, and Hampshire District. Did I get that right, Senator? <laughs> it's a tongue twister, but yes. You, you've run out of counties now. And <laughs> for those for those uh, who are just beginning to hear our new show, Talk the Talk, we should note that Senator Paul Mark, just a 30 seconds of background, has a blue-collar background. His father was a teamster. Yeah, he attributes much of his ability to escape from really poverty uh, to his work in union jobs. Uh, Senator Mark went on. He got his associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, his doctorate, and a law degree. Uh, he served in the House of Representatives from 2010 until this past year when he ran for the Senate and won his Senate seat. We we're talking about uh, the Green Bank, and I'd like to know a practical political issue. You think this is going to pass? I think something's going to happen. I, I think it's it's in place right now. Um, what I hope is going to pass is language that makes sure that there's guidelines on how the money can be spent and, and where it can be spent so that no part of the state is left behind. And then there's a question with Mass CEC, depending on the regulations that come out of Washington, what form do they need to be? So what, what corporate form or what organizational form do they need to be to be able to accept this money? Like, can a state agency accept it? Can a quasi accept it? Or does it have to be some kind of a separate nonprofit? So I, I definitely think something's going to pass. And, I, and you know, you, you file a bill and, you know, the magic number is 21 in the Senate and, and 181 uh, in the House, and then you need the governor's buy-in, especially where there's already an agency existing that, that's trying to house this. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. And I've always been kind of less concerned about the exact format of, say, the board of directors or where it's housed and more concerned about we want this money to get into the hands of people that need it as soon as possible. And we want to make sure that, you know, this part of the state's not forgotten. It's, it's so easy to have it happen. I know Boston's trying to uh, establish its own city of Boston Green Bank or Climate Bank, and which is wonderful. And, and, and that's, I'm sure, going to be quite valuable. It's just we want to make sure they don't take all the money. <laughs> we want to make sure that some of it comes to Western Massachusetts, too. Senator Mark. Is the governor behind this legislation, or at least the idea of the legislation, the attorney general, the Senate president, the, uh, uh, the House of Representatives leadership? Can you tell us? I don't want yeah, you to talk go- out of school, but I'm kind of interested right. to know who's with, who, who's with you, who's with us. The, the, yeah, the, the governor is, is definitely supportive, and she listed the concept of a green bank on her website as a, as a campaign platform piece, and I believe she was 
really influenced in learning about that from people out here in, in, in Western Massachusetts. And I think for Franklin County specifically, um, there's a great group of advocates that have been really active since I started doing this in 2014. And then when you talk about the, the Senate president and the speaker, well, that, that's our job. And so I've always had good support. Speaker DeLeo was extremely supportive, and that's how this bill concept turned into what was that Greenworks bill that passed the House overwhelmingly. I think most Republicans voted for it as well at the time. Um, and so it's just, I, 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 I have a lot of faith in Rep. Moschino that she knows she knows what she's talking about when it comes to energy policy. She's respected on energy policy, and so I think she's going to be a really great co-lead on the House side. And then my job is to sell this to whoever ends up on that TUE committee. On, on, in last session, again, I was the vice chair of the committee, and we had a version that was ready to come out of out of the committee. And then with everything that happened towards the end of the session, it kind of got sidetracked. But I had that language and kind of incorporated it into the new bill that was filed. So I think there's there's pretty good support, and, and we'll try to get it over the finish line again. And I hope you do. Anything that's that's uh, focused on climate and and uh, the kinds of things that Green Bank stands for, we're behind. But I did want to ask you about ele- electricity and mm-hmm. how so many, <clears throat> excuse me, so many ratepayers have seen the price of their electric bills almost double since last year. And of course, that's a disproportionate burden on people who can least afford higher monthly bills. So, what are we doing about electricity pricing? So um, DPU has the ability to kind of set these rates and a justification for why the rates of both electricity and and, and some of the other utilities went up had to do with the cost of oil, the cost of natural gas, uh, all of that, and everything that's going on internationally, the war in Ukraine. And so then when we saw some of the prices start to go down, um, we started making efforts in the legislature, and I was one of the leads on uh, one of these letters that over 90 of our colleagues, House and Senate, signed on to, and we got uh, some traction with, with the natural gas rates and the utility rates going down. Um, the letter we got back from DPU on electricity wasn't as encouraging, but I think there has to be a recognition that the price of these commodities has gone down. And so accordingly, the rates that people are, are, are paying needs to go down as well. And so just to kind of combat that in the longer term as well, there's a there's a bill that got filed. Uh, I, I'm the lead on the Senate side, Rep. John Barrett out of North Adams and Rep. Lindsay Sabados out of Northampton are the leads on the on the House side to kind of re-regulate in a way how DPU sets the electric rates. And so to tie the increases that, that a company like Eversource seeks to maybe the rate of inflation. We do that with health care now. There's a law on the books that says if the cost of health care is going to exceed the regular cost of inflation, there needs to be some kind of a justification before a commission that determines, like, what's the difference? Why is this happening? And so the language I filed initially would say either, um, I think, 5% or the rate of of inflation. And then there has to be a justification, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, for going over that. And then also trying to regulate the mechanism of, of how the approvals work a little bit better, a little bit more pro-consumer side, I think, than what, what we're currently facing that was a result of the deregulation back in the late 90s. And then also talking about what can they, what can these companies consider their costs as they try to get the justification for rates. So if they're, if they're sponsoring uh, some kind of activity for a million dollars, should they be doing that or should they be advertising or should they be hiring lobbyists? Should that count towards what the people that are their customers are paying or should that be counted separately in a different fund? And when I looked at that language, I thought back to how when the old phone company was a monopoly, they were, they were allowed a certain rate of return and, and they had to 
do this and that and, and, and meet these benchmarks. And they had to meet service benchmarks as well. And there was this big push to deregulate everything. And I don't think the customer has been the one that is, has benefited from any of those efforts. And I think people are starting to realize that. And they're getting angry about it because when your electric uh, bill has doubled or tripled even, it takes money out of your pocket that you need for everything else you're trying to do in your life. And that's not only is it, is it harmful to you, you, you and your family uh, and yourself personally, but it's also harmful to the economy. It's, it's bad for business. It's bad for our communities. Are there any of you among your colleagues in, in the two minutes before we take a break, are, are there any of your colleagues who think that the uh, state should keep its fingers out of the business of electric companies or is everybody in agreement that regulation is reasonable? I, I'll, I'll say that close to 100 people signed the letter in support of having DPU reevaluate what the cost considerations are and, and, and request that these companies uh, lower the rates or even set the rates lower. So I think there's a good deal of support, but yeah, there was a hundred people that didn't sign it. So I'm sure there's someone out there that, that thinks uh, there's some kind of a free market approach. But as I look out the window and I see uh, the utility lines running down the street, I am reminded of why coming from the phone company as a, as a lineman at the phone company of why there was only traditionally one phone company and why there's traditionally only one electric uh, service delivery person, because you don't want 20 sets of telephone poles or utility poles running down the street. So I, I don't understand this rather fake concept of, of created competition that really doesn't exist and doesn't really benefit the consumer in any way that I've seen. Hmm. And neither do I. <clears throat> We we're going to take a break. We're talking with Senator Paul Mark. When we come back, I want to talk about the amount of fun funding a municipality receives for its uh, local roads and for highways uh, called Chapter 90. And I want to talk a little bit about higher education with Senator Mark. We're going to be right back after these messages. Stay with us. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of, of safety management in place at Eversource to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. I chose community mental health to serve populations that are often underserved. Megan is a therapist at ServiceNet. One core value at ServiceNet is to continue to learn, to really strive for the most effective treatment. If you're looking for a strong sense of community and collaboration, come to ServiceNet. If you're a licensed mental health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet. Go to the employment page at servicenet.org. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, I'm Jay Sealer, Vice President Commercial Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Our team of commercial lenders are here to help you and your business grow this year. I'm Laura Guzik, Vice President Commercial Lending. We're a small business administration preferred lender, and all of our lenders at the co-op 
have individual lending authority, which means fast local decisions so you can get back to business. I'm Adam Baker, Vice President of Commercial Lending. Are you ready to chat with one of our experienced local lenders? Visit bestlocalbank.com or meet with us in person at any of our Franklin or Hampshire County locations. Or if it's more convenient, we'll even meet you at your business. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Jay Sealer. Or me, Maura Guzik. Or me, Adam Baker. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we are back with On the Mark, talking to Senator Paul Mark. So, Senator... um, uh, for listeners who don't understand what Chapter 90 funds are, there's, uh, there's a formula behind Chapter 90. Can you tell us what Chapter 90 does, what it is, and what the formula is, and what you're working on? Yeah, so Chapter 90 is a section of the law that provides for transportation funding for municipalities. And so there's a formula that's based on partly on road miles and partly on population and other factors. And, and so each community gets... So the legislature and the governor passed a, a, a fund, a total pot in last session. I think it was $200 million for, for the year. And the governor, actually just in North Adams, she proposed one of her first bills a couple of weeks ago, and she proposed $400 million, but for two years, uh, to, to do it once for the session instead of doing it um, every, every year, every calendar year. So you get a total pot of $200 million or $400 million, whatever it might be, and then that gets divided amongst the 351 cities and towns based on how many roads do you have, how many people live there, what's the use, and all, all of that. And so the problem with so many of these formulas, we saw it with the Chapter 70 formula that had to do with uh, education. We see it with other instances. The formulas over time sometimes get out of whack. And then I care a lot about rural communities. I care a lot about gateway cities because those are the areas that I represent. And so you find that the formula out of that total pot of money is just isn't going far enough and really isn't what some of these towns should be entitled to. So then even if we, we talk about, well, why don't we make the total pot $300 million for the year, but still it ends up that Hawley or, or Williamsburg or wherever gets a little bit less than uh, maybe other towns get that they could really use. And so the bill specifically would come up with some kind of a study formula to come to, to figure out, so how do we make it fairly? And, and, and when we looked at like the education formula, yeah, a bunch of money is going into it, but there's also retooling of, of the formula to try to be more fair. And then we've been trying to get that rural addition, the rural school aid that my predecessor, Adam Hines, was uh, really instrumental in to try to make sure that where there's a gap, where there's a gap that a formula just won't fix, it can't be fixed, it can't properly cover a certain community, do we need to just make sure that they have like just this blanket extra little bit of money? And so there's a lot of debate over over how to change the formula and then the problem becomes when you do something solely based on maybe decreasing population and making the road miles more in, in, important when you say the road memory. miles you, you say a yeah. particular time you have you represent 57 towns i believe so one of them has more roads you add up the total linear mileage of the roads within that town and that's part yeah. of the formula to determine along with population and and i think yeah. employment determine how much of that pot they get, right? Yeah, because then they, they try to factor in. So only, I'm making up a number, only 500 people live in the town, but 8,000 come in every day to work. So they're trying to get at how, how, how much are the roads used and how 
many roads are there that exist? How many feet and miles of, of, of roads are there? And so for our purposes, I think it's important that communities that maybe don't have the base population and certainly don't have the employment factor, that they have the ability to have more consideration on, on the road miles and, and, and just try to adjust that. And again, when, you, when you're when you doing these things, you've got to be careful because 80% of the population lives in 20% of the geography and most of my colleagues in the Senate and most of the colleagues in the House side you know, come from those heavily populated communities. And if they're being told we're going to reduce your the amount of money you're getting, I mean that's 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 a conversation that doesn't go anywhere. So <laughs> we're trying right. to figure out how does everybody win, and um, how do we make sure that just the smallest towns don't get forgotten. Forgotten. Yeah, it's super important for your constituents, that's for sure. We need to have yeah. our roads cleared and, and kept in good repair, and we need our bridges cleared, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and and I want to turn to higher education, um, Senator Mark. So you have long been. Um, an advocate of higher ed and of the state uh, keeping the public higher ed tuition low. Uh, now we have the Student Opportunity Act that came in a billion and a half for K through 12, which was just great. Um, and I believe that Massachusetts Senator, uh, Senate President Karen Spilka has now called for investing in higher education in the form of free community college, no tuition, regardless of your ability to pay. So what are you doing with respect to higher ed, the cost of higher ed, and in particular, free community college? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the co-leads on the Cherish Act, and I have been for a long time. And, and Northampton, your local senator, Joe Comerford, she's the, the first lead on the Senate side. And, and it's kind of what the Student Opportunity Act did, just trying to fully fund higher education. And i gotta, I got to give him a shout-out because we have a Western Mass guy. As an MTA member, my president, Max Page, coming out of Western Massachusetts. This is <laughs> right, a regular on Talk to Talk. <laughs> there you go. I know this is a priority to the MTA. I think it's their number one is is making higher education funding a priority. And, yeah, to have the Senate president talk about free college for community college, to have the governor talk about targeted free college for community college. I think it's, it's, it's going to end up in – Something is going to happen. It's much needed. And people, I think, are often surprised that we really underfund, in, in terms of state-by-state, state, uh, our, our public education system, a public higher education system. I think people would be shocked because Massachusetts is known for college. Senator Mark, I, I'd be interested to know how even if, or let me take away the even, strike the even, mm-hmm. if the Massachusetts legislature were to pass this session and the governor were to sign a bill that called for free, at least community college, and then altogether uh, higher education. Uh, what is to make any of that permanent? Why isn't the budget just a year-by-year year endeavor? So what happens this year does not necessarily create a blueprint for the future. Yeah, so the, the law would have to be written in a way that said, the, uh, however however it's worded that higher, uh, uh, high school is, that that the student on the student end, there will be no expectation of payment. Now that's a different story. Is is budgeting? Uh, so year over year, we can't bind a future legislature unless it's through the constitution to any specific funding level. So, if community college became free, in theory, then there becomes that that problem that well, now we only offer three graduation programs because the funding is only adequate for for this. So that that would become the next fight, absolutely. Why is higher education such a priority for you? I've been hearing this since you first ran for office uh, over a dozen years ago. Why is that so important to you? To me, that's what made the difference in, in my life, that the ability to get a degree, to 
uh, go to college, to go back to college, to, to become educated, to learn both work skills. I, I learned at, at Stick as a community college graduate, uh, to learn about the labor movement more as a graduate of the labor center, and then even law school in a doctoral program. Um, it opens pathways for people, and it's not the only pathway. And, and for some people, maybe it's vocational training, but it is a door out of poverty, and it's a door to opportunity. And like that, that's just a focus. And I know the one that worked for me the best, and, and the other one being supportive labor unions, because that's why I had that opportunity. Um, so that's what I fight for personally, and then I collaborate with others who had other paths so that I can open up as many doors as possible. Well, in our view, you're on the mark. Oh, Mark. Remarkable. <laughs> Remarkable. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us, and I look forward to our future conversations. And uh, thank you for everything that you have done and continue to do for your constituents and for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Thanks, Paul. Thank you very much. We will be right back after these messages. Um, we will be talking, talk to talk, with Bill and Buzz, right after these messages. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. State Senator Joe Comerford says there's no competition for funding and resources between the two proposed passenger rail lines connecting Western Mass to Boston. The East-West Rail connecting Boston to Springfield and Pittsfield and the Northern Tier Rail connecting Boston to Greenfield and North Adams are two ambitious projects overseen by different legislators and on different timelines. This is a very fruitful time for us all. Don't stop us by saying that there's only one rail project. It shortchanges Western Massachusetts immeasurably for us to be scarcity-based instead of really going for it at this moment with a lot of infrastructure money on the table. Western Mass Passenger Rail Commission is meeting regularly to determine the proper governance structure for future passenger rail service in our region. UMass is pausing construction on a pavilion project for workers after objections from neighbors. The school was going to build a pavilion as a tribute to its workers near the Arthur F. Kinney Center for Renaissance Studies. But following some backlash, UMass is now looking for another location. In November, the university announced its intention to use a $7 million gift from an anonymous donor to build the UMass Service Workers Honor Pavilion. For the sixth year in a row, an East Hampton High School class has bested its competitors, taking home first place at the We the People, the Citizen and Constitution State Finals at the Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the U.S. Senate in Boston. The academic competition tests students on their understanding of the U.S. Constitution and legal principles and is run by the State Center for Civic Education. The win is the school's seventh overall. Mostly sunny this morning, partly sunny to mostly cloudy this afternoon, a high of 42. Some rain and snow showers move through this evening. It's an overnight low of 26 to 32. Becoming mostly sunny tomorrow, 42 to 46. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. You want the very best opportunities for your child. Given the amount of time children spend in school each day, you want your child to be inspired, to be engaged, to love going to school. At Bement, each student experiences this every day. 
The Bement School in Deerfield is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe, kindergarten through ninth grade, learning from each other in the classroom, rooting for each other on the athletic field, and celebrating each other on the stage. We are local, we are global, and our differences make us stronger. We interact face-to-face, -face, share meals together every day, and open doors for one another. The true essence of your child's time at Bement is preparing for a life of integrity, of significance, of joy. Financial aid and transportation are available to help make a Bement school education possible. I'm Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission. Please contact me or visit our website. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And tonight is the State of the Union. It will be delivered, of course, by President Joe Biden, which brings me to a piece, a very provocative and I think very important piece by columnist Michelle Goldberg in today's New York Times under the headline, Biden's a great president. Well, that's the first part of the headline. And the second is, who shouldn't run again? So I want to share some of those comments from Michelle Goldberg. And then, Buzz, I want to ask you your, your opinion on this, particularly as we go to the State of the Union and look forward to hearing the State of the Union, which is reported by many outlets as being essentially a blueprint of Biden's, Biden's argument for re-election. So here's what Michelle Goldberg had to say. When President Biden gives his State of the Union address on Tuesday, he will have a lot to boast about. And then she goes on to talk about record job creation, the lowest unemployment rate in over 50 years, the infrastructure and the infusion of federal funds into infrastructure, the most in more than a decade, and the Inflation Reduction Act, which made historic investments in clean energy. And which and there's more, but let me just note that while we're on the question over the issue of Inflation Reduction Act, which is a weird title for a bill that actually does much more about other topics and specifically the environment uh, than, than it does inflation reduction. But it is a historic investment in clean energy. And the head of the International uh, Energy Agency called it the most important climate action since the 2015 Paris Climate Accord. As she also notes, and incidentally, inflation is coming down. And Biden has rallied Western nations to support Ukraine and he did exit Afghanistan, however ugly that was. His administration capped insulin prices for seniors, codified federal recognition of gay marriage, 
shot down the spy balloon everyone was freaking out about. And he's on track to appoint more federal judges than Trump. And he get, deserves credit, so says Michelle Goldberg, for Trump's declining influence. And she points out that a lot of pundits rolled their eyes when Biden was seeking to make the midterms a referendum on MAGA. They said, oh, MAGA, it will never work. It will never work. People won't pay attention. He was absolutely right. Biden was absolutely right about, right about that. And she says, and here's a quote, in other words, Biden has been a great president. He's made good on an uncommon number of campaign promises. He should be celebrated on Tuesday, but he should not run again. And then she goes on to discuss Biden's age. And after she says, it's been widely reported, as I noted, that Biden plans to use his State of the Union to set up his case for re-election. She says there's a rift in the Democratic Party about whether this is wise for an 80-year-old to do. Democratic officials are largely on board, at least publicly, but the majority of Democratic voters are not. And she goes on to look at the polling, which says even Democrats have skepticism about a person of Joe Biden's age running for president, saying he will be closer to 90 at the end of his second term, will be 86, than to 80. This is a really tough job. And while it is true that when I was a kid, uh, Chancellor Adenauer in Germany was of this age. Nonetheless, that was a long time ago, and there are very few of us who remember it, and a lot of people who are in their 80s are skeptical that they could do this job and therefore that Biden should continue to the, do this job, and that when Ron DeSantis, the most likely Republican runs to run, uh, is viewed in contrast to Biden, and you have a 40-something, 48-year-old versus an 82-year-old, uh, who will be 82 at the next inauguration, it makes it a very difficult uphill climb for Biden. Think you should run again, Buzz? Um, I think you should run again. I think you should run again. And uh, I don't know whether or not uh, voters are going to be moved to vote uh, in the primaries against him or in the general against him because of his age if, in fact, they are reassured that their lives have been made better um, and like you were saying, like the article was saying, which I haven't read, uh, you know, GDP increased 2.1% over the last year. Um, there, people are earning more money. The employment rate is down to three point, the unemployment rate down to 3.5%. There's, um, some pretty compelling good stuff that has happened despite the fact that there's incredible opposition to Biden if, I mean, there are people in Congress who want Biden not to take a breath. <laughs> they just uh, have decided before he even started doing anything that he was bad news. Congress is going, the House of Representatives is not going to do anything ex except investigate his son and other matters just to politically gain on him. I would think that those voters, those Democrats who have some concerns about whether he should be their candidate are going to look at, and, and by the way, Tonight, I think it's all about reassuring us, about saying, I know there's economic anxiety, I know there's anxiety about our relationship with Russia and now China and climate. There's real grounds for concern. I think that the State of the Union tonight is going to be about reassuring Americans that we're in better shape than we were, certainly during the pandemic, but during the previous administration. I think his age, I, I might be a little jaded because of my age, your age, Bill, our spouse's age, 
And I, I don't know, so far, I think he's been a very competent president, much to my surprise, by the way. I thought he was a little too moderate for my taste, but in fact, go Joe. Well, I disagree a lot with a lot of what you just said, Buzz, because I think the country, and I just always, when you're painting with such a broad brush, you obviously uh, paint too wide, too wide. But I think you're making an argument. What Biden has to do is convince the country that things are really okay and they're getting better. And I'm doing a great job. Just look at all the things we've accomplished, as you point out, the unemployment rate, inflation coming down. Uh, a robust economy, notwithstanding the uh, imposition of higher interest rates from the Fed. Uh, and look at all the great things I've done. Um, and you should feel good about this. The problem is the country doesn't feel good about this. The country is, to use Jimmy Carter's old phrase, uh, in a malaise, or at least how his speech was characterized as the American malaise speech. I think that in the polling shows that people are deeply dissatisfied. And when the people are deeply dissatisfied, they vote for change. That means they vote against Biden. And I think that if the country continues to feel that we're on the wrong track, things are getting worse, we don't have a bright future, and we have this currency bias, and by a bright future, I mean the next six months, a year or two years, uh, they vote for change. And as a number of uh, columnists and opinion uh, writers have pointed out, when they vote for change, they vote for the younger person. Um, yeah, listen, uh, what I was saying, uh, I, uh, your lead asked the question, uh, should Biden run again? That, that was a concern. My, my comments were about, I think you should use the State of the Union to reassure people that things are not as bad as they think and list for us all the reasons why they should feel reassured. I'm not, I'm not one of those, uh, let's talk about the race that's going to happen two years from now, um, two years before it happens. So I, I, I'm always a little bit uncomfortable prognosticating, and things never go the way the pollsters say or the way I think they're going to go when I look that far in the future. My, but tonight is an important speech. Tonight is a State of the Union. It's, uh, the first one was in 1790, and this is what Washington did in the very first one, which is only about a th thousand words long. It was in New York, and here's what he said. These are the things we're going to do. And then since then, it has morphed into a combination of look at, mostly look at what I've done and a little bit of this is what I'm going to try to do in the next year, which isn't really the State of the Union. I think Biden should focus on this This is a state of our union and it's not as bad as it feels to you sometimes. Well, state of the union goes back to the Constitution, which mm -hmm. requires the president to make a report to the Congress on the state of the union. Uh, at the, for many years, the state of the union was a document, it was a letter sent by the president to the Congress. Of course, radio and television have changed that dramatically. Constitution being written at a time when none of those electronic forms of communication existed, of course. Uh, th that said, um, I, I would like to go back to this because I think that what Biden's speech, and it will be interpreted, I assume, as being the election, the election speech or the beginning of his the launch. His, yeah. And what, again, Michelle Goldberg says in her column, column today, she says, Ron DeSantis will be 46 in 2024. And she writes this, barring some radical shift in the national mood, the candidates will be vying for leadership of a deeply dissatisfied country 
desperate for change. For Democrats, the visual contrast between a 46-year-old Ron DeSantis and an 82-year-old Joe Biden, that alone could be devastating. And I fear this for another reason, which is people are going to do something, voters will do something, and I know it's difficult to prognosticate, but voters this election cycle will do something they rarely do, and that is to actually pay attention to the vice presidential candidate. All of the polling and analysis has been done on elections is that the vice presidential candidate does not make a difference. Very few people cast their vote based on what they think about the vice president and what that would mean, what it would mean if the president did not serve out their term. Got it. But this time, people are going to say, well, Joe Biden's, when he's 85, I mean, what if he gets really sick? What if all these verbal slips are not just a matter of of his overcoming his stuttering, which is an amazing story. Uh, what if it does show some... Actually, he doesn't slip as much as he used to when he was younger. But uh, let's not forget, um, there was a very dissatisfied country when, uh, when Jimmy Carter was president, and, uh, and he Ronald Reagan, a much senior Ronald Reagan, who ended up becoming our oldest president up till then. Up till then. Right, up till then. But, I mean, he defeated a much younger incumbent president and it was a dissatisfied country at that time. Right. And it's, it's a dissatisfied country now. I, let me just finish with a thought, which is I think that when people, people, when voters who are not predisposed to vote either for or against Joe Biden uh, look at what about Kamala Harris and they say, do I want her to be president? And I think that a lot of people are going to say, where has she been? What has she done? She's been vice president. I never hear about her. I never really see her. I don't know what she stands for. Did she not really part of this? Is she part of this team? Well, Biden says she is, but I'm not at all clear that the country as a whole sees her that way. And the polling tends to show that she is not held in high regard by a majority of the country. This is Dan. I just want to add that um, I, I, I think American voters tend to fall in love and when you contrast a 46-year-old man with an 82-year-old candidate, I think they'll, they'll make the choice rather clearly. But I think the, the bigger issue than that is this. I think Joe Biden struggles to communicate and lead his party. That's just my view. It's just one person's opinion. I think his lack of communication, I contrast it with Barack Obama and his ability that he just has in, in such large amounts compared to other Democrats. And you can, you can hate every policy DeSantis uh, espouses out of his mouth, but he captures the news cycle. And we're in news, so we know, and we got to say, and we're outraged and mad about it, but we have to find a leader to lead the, de the Democratic Party. And this is not to say he hasn't accomplished all those amazing things was that has surprised me and surprised everyone. But Americans fall in love and they want a leader who can communicate the ideas and what he's fighting for. And this is not a knock on Joe Biden. I just don't think he's that person. So we'll vote for uh, Governor Ron DeRacis. We're going to take no, a oh, break. Gavin Newsom can run. Other people can run. Sherrod <laughs> Brown can. could run. Sherrod Brown. Well, is he really going to excite the base? And, and is he a great communicator? I don't know. I think more about Maryland's governor, Wes Moore. That's what I think. Or Michigan's governor. Or Michigan's governor. Whitmer. Or, or California's. Yeah, there are people out there, if he decides not to run, who will run. If he decides. But if he does, that clears the field. 
Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Take a break. We're here in September 2024. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman. Weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015-1400-1240-WHMP-Do you, you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Downtown Sounds? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op, a music store with new and used instruments and lessons. Live online or live in person. First lessons free when you buy an instrument. Plus, repairs of musical instruments and equipment. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced, college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution if any will arise. The Hug Plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Francis Ray, I'm the Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at hugyourmoney.com. Right in your town, maybe even in your neighborhood, an immigrant is building a new life, trying to find their way, all while learning a new language. The International Language Institute offers free English classes for immigrants and refugees, for true beginners and others, like students in our Bridge to College and Careers program. One of the nation's top language schools is right here, with free English classes for immigrants and refugees. The International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-5989. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we are back at Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And uh, this is Buzz. And uh, in today's Globe, there's a very interesting article about a new bill in the Massachusetts legislature. And that bill, the purpose of the bill is to subsidize local newspaper subscriptions because local newspapers are in trouble economically, closing. Last year, there was a devastating loss to many communities, Waltham, Newton, Watertown. They lost their local newspaper. And so in order to stop that, there was a proposal by Representative Jeffrey Turco 
that there be a tax credit of up to $250 to encourage people to take out a subscription to a community-based news outlet. Um, that is the purpose of the bill, so that uh, struggling news outlets that are local in nature will be able to be helped by this. What do you think of this bill? Well, I am so pleased that here in western Massachusetts we have the Greenfield Recorder, the Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Berkshire Eagle, the Springfield Republican. Uh, a some, Not thriving, but surviving. Well, right. They, they, they are surviving uh, in, in what is considered to be adverse economic times. They made it through the pandemic, and sure, there have been uh, reductions in staff, uh, but they seem to be, I mean, I don't know how to characterize because we don't think we get full reports on here's how much money they made or didn't make. But every day, those papers are six days a week for the Gazette uh, and I guess five for the Eagle, uh, six, six for the Recorder. Six for the Recorder. There they are. Um, and they perform an invaluable service to this community. We would be a much, by comparison, an impoverished community if it weren't both in terms of news and civic engagement, if it weren't for those newspapers. And so supporting them, I think, is something that is really, really valuable. A little concerned about governmental investments, which is kind of what this is, because it would be a tax credit. It's money from the legislature to people to uh, support what some will claim, well, it's a dying industry in 20 years from now or 25 years from now. There won't be newspapers, so why are we investing in them? Well, that's why. We are investing in it because we think that there is a real value to newspapers, um, even if 25 or 30 years from now uh, those newspapers appear on tablets and screens. Gen generally speaking, I understand the concern. Only. Uh, yeah, only. It, our only source of news will be... Yeah. Well, it'll come electronically. I mean, I think that the idea that we're going to have home delivery in the year uh, tw uh, 21, uh, 21, where are we? 2123 um, is unlikely. But hey. And we're going to have Dan Crowley on as a guest, and we'll certainly be talking about this issue. The editor. Of I, my question to both of you is what would qualify as a su subscription? Like it isn't just the, these newspapers, these legacy newspapers, right? What if I create an online newspaper and say it's for the Valley? Would that count? Good question. Right. That, uh, yeah, if, if we are, um, uh, can you imagine Bill getting a, a tax credit because you subscribe to the uh, Dan Torres Times? Uh, yeah. I'd love to read the Dan Torres Times. <laughs> uh, we're once a year <laughs> subscription, and we charge you two hundred fifty dollars. Two hundred forty nine ninety nine. Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it, I think it's great that people are uh, trying to innovate in order to keep local press alive. I, for all the reasons you just mentioned, it's it's critical. It's it's really important. I love reading local news. Can I just quickly add? Exhibit A would be George uh, George Santos. Uh, run. I mean, where was the local media there? I mean, they should have been covering that story. Good exhibit, and, man. Well, one local newspaper did cover the uh, Santos story, and it simply was not picked up by the mainstream media. Mm. Local media actually did its job in that race, but nobody paid attention. It's true. It's true. Well, 
I am the editor of the New York Times, so that... Oh, I'm sorry. That was George Santos speaking. <laughs> Everybody, thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, we will be back tomorrow with Talk to Talk. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Buzz. Thank you, Dan. Talk to you tomorrow. from the news we don't blame you why don't you turn the dial over to our pure oldie station it's the music you grew up with whmp and the news will be right here when you get back the valley's pure oldies 96.9 and 100.5 Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 11 o'clock.